Hey everyone, we at Renegade Animation and Renegade Pop Culture stand with the WGA and SAG strike that is currently going on. If you would like to help donate to the cause, go to entertainmentcommunityfund.org and donate to the film and television category. To be clear, this is not a strike fund. It is a fund for those who are affected by the strike. With all that said, if you like what we do, please give us a like, a follow, and a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. We are everywhere you listen to podcasts. Also, support our Patreon. That way we can keep doing what we love, and that's talking about animation. And now, on with the show. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Renegade Animation on the Renegade Pop Culture Podcast Network. My name is Mike. I'll be your host this evening. Joining me, as always, is the animation guru himself, Cameron. Howdy, howdy. Boy, we got a fun episode for today. We have reviews for a new surprise Invincible special, Invincible Adam Eve, plus Gremlins, Secret of the Mogwai, and the first slam dunk. But first, yeah, this Invincible special kind of came out of nowhere. Of course, over the weekend was San Diego Comic-Con. We got a little bit of news about when we're expecting Invincible Season 2. That won't be till November. But until then, we got this little hour to hold us over. So, what do you think? Well, like you said, over this the weekend after we record this, Comic-Con happened. And we got an origin story for Atom Eve. Overall, like, while it is obviously filler content to hold us over until the first half of season two is released. I did like the story overall. It wasn't my favorite episode per se of what we've seen so far, but I did like what the episode special talked about with adoption and family disconnect and the fact that there's a government agency in or like a group that were trying to weaponize children with considering a lot of nonsense that's going on in the world right now it's scary this is supposed to be the parody of like this government is so cruel and heartless that they would make child soldiers with these superpowers but if you follow any aspect of the news yeah it's just without the superhero part yeah that's the thing the only difference now between invincibles world and our own is we are not inhabited at least right now by aliens and other high like hard sci-fi elements and there are no superheroes running around but outside of that the show gets pretty dark it isn't afraid to touch on some heavy themes as far as like an adam eve origin story i honestly really enjoyed this well, it definitely held the, like, a theme of the story was definitely, or at least what I assumed picked up on was Adam Eve having a, like, I don't want to say a learning disability, but there's definitely, like, families dealing with a kid with a disability, even though the parents didn't exactly know they got a superpowered child that could take apart and reform non-living things with her mind and such. It got a little repetitive at points with just the disconnect between Samantha and her foster parents. 
because it just seemed like, okay, we get it. There's angst and like something she can't really tell them about herself. And then realizing that she was not their actual child. But I think what low points this special has are definitely held up by the overarching narrative and how, while there's definitely like a cynicism to this world, it still feels more hopeful than something from the boys. Though this is just me saying, like, I haven't fully watched all of the boys yet. I've gone to basically season two, like at the halfway point. But I like the world of Invincible more in terms of, to basically summarize it, bloodier superheroes. That is kind of becoming a subgenre, like the larger superhero genre. But I think the lowest point for me is Eve's parents, because especially the dad, he had like less than zero clue how to deal with the situation. And like we kind of brought up earlier, that's not too dissimilar from from instances in the real world where parents are kind of struggling to figure out how to connect with their children. Exactly. And I mean, it definitely evens out by the end. It turns into a very sad and sobering tale of just the struggle between children and their parents. It's also a bummer in a lot of other ways with this being one of the last things where we heard the late great Lance Reddick in where he plays one of the government officials that basically wanted to use Eve as a weapon and just the he was willing to go through with the fact that like just because they didn't have this one scientist they wanted to keep trying to recreate it and then kept these individuals around just because they could be used as weapons and it's sad it doesn't really skip out on much of the like tone of invincible because you're even though this is a spinoff it can still be fairly funny it has a lot of good action i think the animation is way better than the first season hopefully they had more time to craft this i didn't hit mouse's name in the credits but i think this is the first time that like guybound animation is going like diving headfirst into making sure this looks as good as it can I liked the first season, but there were definitely some animation issues that could have been ironed out if the industry didn't treat its animators like garbage. The action is still good. It's still pretty bloody. Not as bloody as I would say. As a finale? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And like as the gore pretty much starts and stops with Eve fighting those rejected superpowered children and such otherwise it's just very like character driven like a lot of the show can be and it does have one fairly decent funny moment that i thought was cute with how they closed out the special where they're like but where's our main character because this takes place in the past it shows our lead who is still not with superpowers. It just is a reminder of how scary Omni-Man can be. You could now imagine with like this special, there were probably multiple times where he was just 
ready and willing with no second thought to smear Mark Grayson into the ground or all over the place. You see it in his eyes where it's like he's both disappointed that his son doesn't have powers, but also knowing how season one ends, we can't really trust anything that he says because we know none of his family life matters to him. And that's the whole Greek tragedy of it all. He's from this ultra-violent race of aliens, but he does care for his family, but there's just that these are inferior beings. I could just take them out in a day with nothing stopping me. But he cares about them, and he there's like a tiny bit of remorse but like when he looks like he's about to snap. We'll have to see how that unfolds within season two, but yeah, I thought this was a very good story for Samantha Eve Wilkins, a.k.a. Adam Eve. And I wonder if they'll do this for other superheroes. I feel like Adam Eve was the candidate for said special. Unless they wanted to go like a slightly more humorous route with Seth Rogen's character, the uh, one-eyed alien. Ooh, that would be fun. I think that would be interesting if they leaned, had a more comedy edged episode but we'll have to see where season two goes because i haven't read the comics i don't want to read the comics not because of any pedantic petty reason i just don't want to spoil myself with what may or may not happen depending on how they adapt understandable i'm just kind of curious like if this is just like a one-off or if Eve is going to take a larger role in season two. And this is just kind of a tease of what we could expect. Exactly. So yeah, it's on Amazon Prime right now. And definitely give it a watch if you've enjoyed the first season and what have you. Let's move on to some shenanigans with Gremlins, Secret of the Mogwai, the prequel TV series that will now have two seasons coming out with the first season out now, but they confirmed recently it got renewed for a second season. This takes place way, way, way in the past. I would say maybe at least early 1900s. Something like that. Trying to think of the technology because they had trains, they have ships, but the clothes that we see later on look more 1910s, 20s. They say it's set in 1920s Shanghai. Okay, so that makes sense. So we follow a young boy named Sam Wing, who is the son of these two parents who run a medicine shop. He lives there also with his eccentric uncle named Grandpa Wing, voiced by James Hong. And one day while out on a town to go shopping for medicine, like pieces, components, they spot Gizmo, a mogwai, from, of course, the titular iconic movies. And we then go on a journey where Sam and, yeah, Al, a young thief, go on a journey with Gizmo to take him back to his kind while also avoiding the grasp of everyone who would want the dangerous potential of the Mogwais. It felt like this thing took forever to come out. Like, I know animation is a process, and especially with how 
distinctive this show's animation was. It felt like this was announced maybe like 2018, 2019, and now it's like we finally got our hands on it. Before HBO Max even had a name, that's when we started to hear about the series. And this was like back in February of 2019. Golly. Well, we now have officially seen it. And I think I overall really like it. Maybe I would have loved it more if I had a connection to the Gremlins movies. But I think all things considered, with this being the first new official media entry in the franchise since the movie, since then it was just usually ads or commercials and merchandise. This was very good. I mean, it definitely is aimed more at families and young teens, I think, in terms of tone. But I think a lot of people could really get into this show. I won't say it has like the exact edge that the original two movies had, but it's still pretty much there at points. I'm sure the target demographic they were going for were like, yeah, we can't go too dark, even though these gremlins are extremely dangerous. I think a good point of comparison would be the Beetlejuice animated series, which wasn't quite as dark as the movie, but still retained at least some of the bite. And yeah, that's basically how I feel about this show. It doesn't quite reach the heights of like Gremlins 2, where it's just complete lunacy, but it's not afraid to get dark in the more serious moments. And the Gremlins still very much act like Gremlins. They do. They still keep a lot of the chaotic charm of the Gremlins, especially when they get to Shanghai, when the Gremlins are causing chaos and such. They even throw in a few references from the second movie. I mean, I only caught one of them, where they do the uh, flashing Gremlin, where he, like, you know, opens up his jacket and such. Oh, yep. But otherwise... The only other thing that connects Gremlins 2 to this show is the fact that there is a smart Gremlin who's at first voiced by Eric Bauza, but then when he gets a hold of this, I think it was a potion when they were in that spirit world area, but when he gets the potion that makes him smarter, he is voiced by the always great George Takei. Yes. And the cast for this show is very good. I very much enjoyed it. We have Isaac Wang as Sam, Ming-Na Wen and B.D. Wong as the parents. It's like a little mini Mulan reunion in some regards. Well, especially since James Hong is also in it. Matthew Rise plays the villain of the show, or like one of the villains. The human villain, I guess you could say. I guess Matthew Rice has it in his contract that like, yes, I will play your villain. This is what, that third villain we've talked about where he's voiced by him? Who's who's the second? Well, we had the Owl House. He was also the main villain in SEAL Team. Oh, that's right. And now he's the villain here. And I will say, there are a few moments within the second and like episode and later on where someone does lose an actual finger 
And what happens to his character, Riley, was very gruesome for what the target demographic for this show might be, which I loved. I'm not saying it's a downside, but how he lost both of his hands, like that's graphic for all things considered. I mean, it's not Infinity Train where someone gets evaporated, but still, that's pretty graphic for a show aimed at families. Especially how he loses his second hand, like where they actually show it like getting all twisted before just evaporating. Like I said, there's still a lot of the edge and like dark comedy that you want from the Gremlins in this show. It's just more family friendly. But the fact that like James Hong's character just basically gets taken out of the show until later on. I was very impressed because I think kids and families can actually handle darker elements to shows. There's a reason why so many of the most acclaimed shows from the past few years to like the past decade were ready and willing to go a little darker. And I like that the show focuses more on the Chinese folklore element of this fantastical world. The rest of the cast includes a lot of good names. Dee Bradley Baker, Sung Wan Cho, Gray Griffin, Zach Galligan, who was the lead from the first two movies, shows up in a voiceover cameo. And we have Kasuke Hoshi, Sandra O oh is Nuwa, the goddess of creation. Uh, Randall Park plays Odd Odd, that shape-shifting entity that they encounter who... Oh yeah, that is him. Yeah. Bowen Yang, Julie Nathanson, and Keon Young, and Ramona Young also shows up. It's a very good voice cast, and it definitely leans more on China's culture than it just being kind of an addition to the first movie and what have you. And I like the animation for this one. It definitely has those moments of TV animation details, not in a really bad way, like super empty cities and what have you that look sterile. The art style helps make this show have a lot more of an identity and personality to this world of gremlins. I love the animation and the art style, and I even like the use of mixed media for, like, flashbacks or, like, the thoughts in certain characters' heads. It's very well done. I do like the fact that the show has one kind of reference to the rules of the Gremlins and how it comes off less as, like, a meta reference to the jokes and jabs that you see from Gremlins 2. But just how it comes off like they're more annoyed with how the rules of, of the Mogwai work. With the whole, you know, you can't get them wet. Don't feed them after midnight. And what have you. It was funny with how James Hong delivered the line. Where he was just like, yeah, I know the rules don't make sense. We're kind of stuck with them. Get over it. <laughs> and the painted look of the world. Oh, it's just lovely that all the characters have these fun painted textures to like their hair to the skin and i'm glad for the most part that outside of the smart gremlin they don't rehash any of the gremlins that i 
remember from the first and second movie. The fact that they're immortal, on the one hand, would give you the excuse of just reusing the ones that everyone loves. But outside of Gizmo, everyone else is pretty much a new character. Yeah, it's nice that the show is not wholly relying on nostalgia or the past movies to carry it. I mean, you don't have to watch the movies to get this show. I mean, what do you think? I'm pretty sure that's the whole point of the show, that like, if you've never seen the Gremlins movies, you can get on board with this one like pretty easily. But if you have, you'll recognize some things like, I think it was either episode, oh, it was episode four, Don't Drink the Tea. When Elle is like giving like that big speech about why she doesn't like the mid-autumn festival, it's pretty much a direct reference to the Why I Hate Santa Claus monologue from the first movie. That's such an odd moment from that movie. And then the fact that they make fun of that in the second movie. Man, that second movie, man, you we're never going to get a chaotic vision like that anymore. Or again, with how Joe Dante got full control on that one. <laughs> yep. The overarching story arcs of just like being brave, friendship is great. They're there. It's straightforward. But, you know, the writing and the characters help, like keep it from feeling overly familiar. And... And I think that helps because of how alongside Z Chun, like the person who helped develop the overall show, we have Steven Spielberg, Sam Red- Register, Brendan Hay, and a few others who are part of the production process. Now, how involved Steven Spielberg was... I don't know, but it feels like a lot of aspects of the show got through because of Spielberg. A lot of this stuff could go get in and not have to be dealt with. The uh, What's that branch of every studio has? Uh, standards and practices? Yep. <laughs> like, it's a fun show. It's not my favorite show from the year, but for a new generation who are probably going to now want to watch the movies... It's a good jumping off point, and it's a good show overall. I'm curious to know where season two goes. If they bring in new villains, if the intelligent gremlin voiced by George Takei plays a bigger role, we'll have to see. I do have a feeling that Noggin is going to be pretty much the big bad of season two, but I would overall agree. This is, it would probably be like, the bottom half of my top 10 and maybe even outside of that. But overall, I really did enjoy this series. I think fans of the Gremlins movies will enjoy it. And if you've never seen the Gremlins movies, this is kind of like the perfect entry point. Overall, I'm satisfied. Exactly. It's on Max right now. And apparently it was a very successful show. So, you know, hopefully that means we get blu-rays and dvds or whatever and ways to watch this outside of the streaming service and that giant toad of a ceo keeps his hands away from removing this from the service oh god yes (laughs) and now though we talk about 
probably one of the biggest surprises in terms of animated films that have been released this year because I was probably going to like this movie even though my familiarity with the manga and the anime is very limited but the adrenaline rush I got with watching the first slam dunk was something I rarely feel for a lot of movies like my top six movies have all given me that like wow (laughs) This is why I like movies feeling. This is based off of the manga by Takahiko Inoue, who is also the director and writer of this movie. Very rarely do we get to see that. I think from what I recall reading, the producers wanted Takahiko to direct and write because he was the only one who would be able to capture the spirit and vibe of slam dunk because this is one of those super classic 90s anime probably one of the few sports anime people know about Mm -hmm. i would say not many know about a lot of other ones maybe outside of like princess nine and shoot for the ace and hopefully more people know about salary man's club because man i love that show and i will recommend it to anyone but mike What did you think about the first slam dunk? Well, just like you, my knowledge slash exposure to the slam dunk manga and anime were limited. I know the anime has an English dub, but I don't think this was quite as popular in the States as, you know, the big three. But just watching this movie, I, I get it. I get why these characters are so enjoyable why this show and this series were just so beloved and the animation is awesome the basketball scenes were very engaging i'm as surprised that i enjoyed this one as much as i did even though i did like that like first teaser when this was announced well that's the thing when this was first announced it was like a big deal because slam dunk hasn't been touched in forever. Like, we've gotten more Prince of Tennis media than Slam Dunk. But I think that's because maybe Takahiko was very protective of the property, and he wanted to make sure that it was done justice, because, good lord, we know how many bad adaptations there are of popular manga and anime. Then when we actually saw footage of the movie, it was like, are they doing the stylized CGI route? And then we got more footage to see the big picture of it all. They were. They were using a more, like, stylized look of the manga. They didn't try to update the designs or do anything to make it more appealing to look at for modern-day audiences. It's like they literally used some kind of magic and just ripped out the characters, put them in CGI, and then took the time to put 2D elements all over them and the world of this movie. There are moments where it cuts to 2D animation and you can kind of tell, but it's definitely one of the more 
cohesive experiences of combining 2D and CGI. Oh, yeah. Like, anytime it did switch from, like, 2D to 3D, it was pretty much, I would say, like, 95% seamless. It helps that instead of doing something like changing the color palette, the 2D sequences, they keep a very consistent... I don't want to say drab because that sounds negative. Like, I guess monochrome look are consistent between the CGI sequences and 2D sequences. Like, there's bright colors like reds and blues and what have you, but it's not garish. It feels very grounded with its visuals. And apparently this took, like, three or so different tries since... 2009 or so to get right because the they wanted a like the original project was being led by uh, Naoki Miyahara and Toshio Ohashi they were thinking that to capture the intensity of the sport that CGI would work and it just kept falling through because it was either too different from the anime itself and like the manga or it just like lost steam. And then like almost a decade or so now they're like, Oh, (laughs) we finally found it. We found what we can actually do. And I'm sure the outcome of certain movies like Spider-Verse helps or like the peanuts movie and what have you, where they're like, oh, hey, maybe we can do that. Because instead of doing something like what Lupin the First does, where it looks like the characters, but it's definitely CGI. I mean, they still look like the manga and the anime and such, but here, it's literally like moving pages from the manga. Yeah. I think you're... Peanuts movie comparison is pretty apt. This is sort of like the next logical evolution of combining 2D and 3D elements. Yeah, you can probably connect this movie to the success of Into the Spider-Verse, which must have lit a fire in all of animation, not just in the States. The desaturated colors look of the world reminds me of a lot of stuff like only yesterday during the flashback and memory sequences where like you had your traditional Ghibli look for the modern day look, but for the flashback sequences, it has a more watercolor look to everything. And I love that. And I'm sure they do this as much as they can with typical anime CGI productions, but The fact that the jerseys felt like actual freaking jerseys was a great immersive detail. Like, they leave the body, they crinkle up, they fold up against the bodies of the players. And just like that moment where Ryota Miyagi dashes to the side, and you see that the basketball jersey of his literally leave his shoulders and then come down like they took a lot of time to work with the motion capture work 
of the CGI and the animators coming in to polish everything out. I was kind of curious, like, how much motion capture was used, especially for the actual basketball game, because the way these characters move on the court feels very realistic, even though we know that what we're looking at is technically not real. Yeah, exactly. And what helps is that the characters are stylized, and they are emotive and expressive, But even like some of the more stylized characters, like the coach or some of the friends in the the audience seats, like have these looks to them that definitely are like exaggerated. They still feel grounded. And that helps when these teams of people working with CGI and motion capture are given the time to make it all look good. I mean, that's why... Studio Orange is able to do basically whatever they want because they're able to get out what they can or want to and it looks amazing. And I know we've seen like the X-Arm disasters of where the CGI was just awful, awful, awful. No, No work was put into it outside of motion capturing. And a good example of this would probably be like, if you, I'm going to take from Playframes the animation of the Sonic games video, because I think it's a very good example of why, if you're going to use motion capture, you have to go the distance with it. Because doing motion capture with characters that are going to have inherently exaggerated or anime or cartoony design flourishes. It's not going to look good when they either look dead or have what Playframe called the mascot suit problem, where there's just like a dead look in their eyes and it looks like they're just wearing costumes. Here, even though it has its anime flourishes with how characters react, you don't feel pulled out by their movements and golly that basketball game i was curious to know how much of the game was going to be the focus it's probably like 50 to 60 percent yeah i would there's a pretty healthy balance between what's on the court and everything outside of the court because this movie like at first with all the advertising it seemed like ryota miyagi was going to be the main character of this story when I think the redhead is the one who is the main character within the anime. I forgot. He's the one that that, like you see on the cover of the mangas. Right, exactly. And he's the main character of the anime and such. For the first chunk of the movie, he plays secondary. And then throughout the two hours, it goes from learning about Ryota's backstory to diving into everyone else's from Hanamichi's just kind of drive to prove himself that he's not just some wild like a-hole like punk or so like it will dive into Takanori's Akagi's backstory 
Hisashi Mitsui's backstory. And I think the only one I would argue who gets the least amount of backstory is Kaede Rukawa, the one who wants to prove himself to be the best. Like, they go over Hisashi and Ryota's history of, like, Hisashi was a bully and a punk. And then Ryota won him over. And then Takenori is just extremely prideful of his work in the sport, but also in the team. And it becomes this literal tug of war between the two teams of, like, this one team is considered the best team in Japan, or at least this part of Japan. And it becomes a mind game of how do we work around them? Because otherwise we are kind of screwed. They'll learn what our strategies are. And they do that multiple times, but it becomes thrilling when the team that we're rooting for find out how to maneuver around them, whether it's from Mitsuyoshi Anzai's strategic comments, or if the team members themselves figure out, hey, we got to change things up a bit. Like, I love the sequence where Mitsuyoshi pulls... Hanamichi off the court for a moment so then he could put out uh, Kiminobu Kogari, the one with the glasses out but not just because of, oh, Hanamichi is doing terrible. He gave Hanamichi his two cents of like, hey, do you notice this? How do you think we can work around that? That's what I like about the game itself. There was a lot of strategy that the audience was in on just as much as the players. Like, we got to really see how they work as a team, how none of them are really our friends in the traditional sense, but they all kind of have their own reasons for wanting to succeed. They have their own found family kind of connection with one another. And unfortunately, I was only able to watch the subtitle version, but... For the English voice cast, they got some pretty good people. They have Paul Castro Jr. as Ryota, Ben Balmaceda as Hanamichi, Takenori is voiced by Aaron Goodson, Hisashi is voiced by Jonas Scott, and Kaede is voiced by Alex Lee. But they also have some other names in there, like Zeno Robinson shows up, Brent Mukai, Mike Pollock, Daniel Walton, Bill Butts, Mark Swint. Like, it's a very good cast. And I also really liked the Japanese cast also, especially with Shugo Nakamura playing Ryota. Like, they really dive into his disconnect with his mom after the passing of their father and his older brother. And how everyone was like, well, since he's the older brother, that means he's going to be just as good. And then they find out that he's not his older brother, but Ryota has to come to terms that he's not his brother but he is himself and he's going to prove to the world how much he's good at basketball. Yeah. And that's a very relatable story. Not so much the specific chips on his shoulder, but generally carving your own identity and stepping out of the shadow of an older sibling or just your family in general. That's something a lot of people can relate to. Exactly. And I will also say I loved 
the opening sequence of like after the flashback with Ryota and his brother and how they do that cool 2D and then subtle change into CGI with them drawing the team members out. I love that black and white look of the implementation of certain moments. It brings this emotional vibe to it of like you're getting ready to be pumped up for the game. And I was like, I almost lost my voice or was out of breath because I was holding in everything when the sequences at the end turned to black and white. Mm, Yes. And I was just like the final score was made and it was 12 o'clock at midnight when I was watching this. I could not be super loud, but I was just like, oh man, I was ready to be like roaring with like, yeah. And, and here it's able to balance it out for two hours, which I was curious to see how that would have worked. And I didn't even notice the time that has passed until the second half of the film started. And I'm not saying that as a criticism. It's more an observation of how pacing is a bigger situation to take care of if your film is going to be two hours or more. Yeah, especially in animation. Like, most people are just kind of used to animated films, at least in the West, staying to a strict, like, 90 to, at most, an hour 50. But in Japan, they're like, no, you tell the story that you need to tell. I guess you can argue that the second half definitely feels longer because they keep cutting to and from each of the players. Like, you know what you're going to get. You're going to get some back and forward between both of the teams, and then one of the characters is going to have his backstory revealed. And I could see that maybe hurting some things, but I don't think it actually hurts the pacing at all. I think it also helps because apparently this is from a later story arc from the manga, from what I read. So it's good to throw in those moments of like what drives these people. I think the opponent's team only gets one person who gets like a little bit of backstory with the guy going like going to a shrine and saying, please give me the energy and what I need to show why I love basketball. Oh, yeah, yeah. I That was a nice touch, like, to get a little bit of backstory from the other team. Because I don't think the others get that much development. You get little character beats from everyone, but it's not as in-depth as everyone else. So it's like, if you're a fan of the manga, you probably know about all of the history that these characters share. But for newcomers it's a good idea to give them something because I definitely want to watch the anime and the manga because apparently this picks up after where the anime ended. So that's interesting because I kind of assumed, I assumed that this was meant to be kind of a clean slate for all for both longtime fans and newcomers. And speaking as a newcomer, I was able to enjoy this movie perfectly fine without any prior knowledge but now that i have seen this it's like i want more i want to go back and watch the anime and 
get to know these characters more. What works is that even though it has a ton of the side characters that you would know from the manga and anime, it focuses on the ones who are the most important, which are the teammates, where then the coach gets second banana and then everyone else has to basically say, hey, y'all aren't the focus. You're just here to help liven things up. Because there are some anime adaptations or like franchise films from either Isekai or whatever shonen action show is big right now where they're like, oh, we got to make sure all the characters are in there because otherwise the fans will want to know where they are. But then you're going to alienate the newcomers who may not even know this was based off of a show or manga or whatever. You could not jump into the reincarnated as a slime movie from this year. You couldn't do that with the Sword Art Online movie from this year. You can jump into the first slam dunk and not worry about a single thing. And I think that's great storytelling. It may be because it took so long for there to be something new to slam dunk is why they did what they did with the storytelling and such. So you can tell there's nothing really corporate about this movie compared to, and as much as I loved one piece red, there have been like at least a dozen one piece movies. And I could talk till I'm blue in the face about dragon ball, but this feels very special. It's special enough to be in my top 10 animated films of the year so far. It's at number seven right now, but I'm sure given more time to think about it, it will move up, but it's just tough. It's become a much better battleground for animation this year. It just took a little to get there. And I think with stuff like Across the Spider-Verse, Tatina, Elemental, Deep Sea, Nimona, Suzume, and the Ernest and Celestine sequel, we're now seeing like all of the good stuff that's starting to come out. And, you know, after we record this, it'll probably be released during or maybe the week before TMNT Mutant Mayhem comes out. And I do hope people see the first slam dunk. I know it's probably going to do one of those fathom releases that's going to be extremely limiting on where it will be shown but i hope people tune in to the first slam dunk same i hope this one gets at least as wide release as bell did back in in january of last year where it actually made a pretty penny for g kids i think bell is the highest grossing movie that they've released theatrically yeah, G-Kids bought the first Slam Dunk and will be releasing it here also, so... And right now, it's made, like, $263 million worldwide, and most of that money is from Japan, but that's how big a deal this project is. Exactly. Give it a watch. I hope y'all can watch it. It's so good. One of my favorite films of the year, and probably one of my favorite sports films ever. It just captures the mindset of not only the sport, but of the characters and what they're going through. And I just want people to see this. I know people just mostly want to see 
the recognizable franchise films. And yeah, the, the first slam dunk definitely has a, an old school feel like, golly, these characters feel so much more retro than they should to me. Like, I shouldn't say they're retro, but we literally don't get characters that look like this anymore. It's true, we don't. Or that look so specifically like this. And y'all should be going out there and supporting these movies. Like any anime film or any foreign animated film that comes out here in the States, if you can. Or at the very least, support it when it hits digital or when you get a physical release for it. So, If you see this movie and you enjoy it, follow our lead and maybe check out the anime. Because, like, right now, the first Slam Dunk has inspired me to go back and, and check out the Slam Dunk series. It's out right now on, I think, Retro Crush. But I know the two seasons, you can buy them on Amazon. But, like, when I say two seasons, it's like, the original show is 101 episodes. <laughs> so, there's definitely plenty to watch for this franchise. If you see any of those like free anime streaming services like Retro Crush and they have it, give it a watch. Oh, you can also watch it on Crunchyroll too. Oh, that's splendid. That's all I really have to say. We're going to be taking a break next week just because I'm going out of town. So we'll keep it up in the air about what we will be talking about. It'll probably be Mutant Mayhem, but you'll just have to wait and see. Until then, Cameron, where can everyone find you online? You can find me on Twitter. I am not calling it X or Zeet or whatever that walking tumor of a man wants to call Twitter now. But I still have Twitter. I'm waiting for a Blue Sky invite. But you can find me on Twitter at View. I have a website called campsideview.biz where I review animated films and shows from around the world called The Other Side of Animation. There is a WordPress version of that, of these reviews and editorials called campstheothersideofanimation.wordpress.com. And I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash campsideview. That's where you can find me. And you can find me on Twitter. Yes, Twitter. No other name. At CaptainK42. You also can find me on Blue Sky at CaptainK42. You can check out my quick thoughts on letterbox.com slash CoachK42. You can follow Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and Twitter at Ren Pop Culture. You can also find us on YouTube, on Podchaser. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash renegadepopculture. Listen to all of our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. And last but not least, everything can be found at renegadepopculture.com. Need an escape? So do we. That'll do it for this episode of Renegade Animation. We will catch you guys later. Peace out.